we're certainly living through interesting times. I like to say that I went from fat five to lean five in a month. So we go back a month ago and you know, I was sitting nicely above 25 times expenses and I backed into a little side hustle for a friend's company. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, but I could not be doing this thing by myself, so let's check in with the co-host, Justin. What's up, man? I think the same thing the last few weekends. It feels like kind of Groundhog Day, where every day feels a little bit like the same. You know, I know a lot of times people talk about when they pull the trigger and start early retirement, they kind of start forgetting what day is which and I find that happening to myself. Um, other than working on the van, I don't really have uh, a ton going on. How about you, Cody? Yeah, same thing is happening to me, man. Like, I don't know the difference between Sunday and Wednesday at this point. But this past weekend was a lot of fun. I hung out with my girlfriend, Lauren. It was her 22nd birthday. So we had a good time hanging out at her place at, in her college town. But man, it's a ghost town. There's no one here. No one's coming back to school after spring break. So we've just been kind of chilling, cooking, hanging out, starting some new side hustle stuff. But before we move any further, let's take a quick pause for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans. These can be 401ks. These can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. Today, we got Robert from Stop Ironing Shirts, and he's got a really cool story because he actually retired a year ago before this whole pandemic happened, and everyone's bottom lines have seen these huge losses. So he's able to give us a lot of insights on what it looks like and feels like to go through this transition of having this fat fire number quickly go down to a lean fire number. And I think it's a great story to tell when we're thinking about what's happening with the fire movement and where it's going to go. And Robert also walks us through the power of choosing the sales career path. But we don't want to take away all this thunder. Take it away, Robert. I probably have a similar situation to what I've heard Justin talk about in that we didn't really grow up with a, a whole lot of money. And I started picking up on that fact when I was a teenager, you know, and I'd see people around me, see extended family that had more money and start noticing why, what did they do differently? So I had a little bit of an idea. But then when I started having to figure out finances for college, it really hit home for me. So when I'm going through trying to figure out what a Pell Grants look like, what a loans look like, how does how much I pay for college impact things, that's when I really started reading about finance. And especially when I didn't have much money in college. So, you know, I found myself early on on these message boards for Clark Howard, picked up this guy's radio show and said, hey, he doesn't really spend money. 
and I, I didn't know it at the time, he was one of these original early retirees. So kind of figuring out how to finance college piqued my interest to start. And then it just kept going from there. When you're talking about looking at people around you, maybe extended family, people who did have a little bit more money and wondering like, you know, I wonder how they did that. I'm just curious because I know like when I was looking at that situation, like on top of wanting to be have money, you know, there's like wanting to be successful, wanting to see the world. Like, I'm just curious where all those motivations came from. Was it solely just like, hey, these people have, are making money. I'm just going to follow their footsteps. Or was it did you feel like you had this natural desire that maybe people around you who didn't have money didn't have? Like, did you have a bigger drive to get out and do something with your life than you feel like people around you did? I, mean, I think it started with, you know, those hierarchy and needs where security was the first one. You know, I would see a lot of stress that would come from not having money. You know, and in hindsight, you can look at it and say, well, part of that self-induced, because depending on your job choice, how much you want to work, that's directly related to how much money you have. And then I would watch, you know, certain relatives would be really disciplined at work. And I, I was fortunate to have really two really good set of grandparents growing up. Both of them had gone to college. They had professional jobs, you know, and whereas my parents were both kind of children of the 70s, very much free spirits and rebels against that traditional corporate life. So it it was this big difference, but they had me when they were really young. So I got to see the difference between here's the rebel life they chose versus here's the corporate path that the grandparents chose. And there were two very different levels of uh, financial security. And so did the parents coming from that rebel background, did they push you toward the corporate career because that's not what they had in their life and they wanted you to have that financial security? Because if I'm not mistaken, you did end up going down that corporate route. Yeah, I didn't grow up living with them, but I got a lot of that pressure from my dad because sometime around the age of 30, he had spent 12 years working his way up from the factory floor, finally getting over to the white collar side of the job. And I think he realized at that point that it had taken him 12 or 15 years to get to a place where he could have been at at 23 had he just made different choices. So I think that helped push me towards college. There still wasn't any money there to help with it. So I had to figure that part out on my own. But I mean, I think that that pushed me there and it pushed me towards sales because where he eventually migrated to was in sales and his job. Okay. So when you're looking into going to college, it's kind of what I was about to ask is, you know, how did you choose what path you wanted to go down as far as what specialty you wanted to study? Because, I mean, most 18-year-olds, to be honest, are not equipped with the decision-making, you know, information to choose what they want to do for the rest of their life. So just curious, like, what led you to what ultimately ended up being sales? Yeah, I had no idea, really. It was 1999 and 2000 when I graduated. I graduated high school in 2000. So computers were all the rage. And I was a bit of a computer geek. I knew all about it. And when I was going into college, signed up for computer science, and I got into my first programming class and said, whoa, whoa, this this is just not for me. You know, and it was some 1980s language that only the military was using that they were teaching me to program. And I pretty quickly realized that this was not for me. And then I got a job my senior year at Staples. So, hey, it's computers. But really, you had people coming in trying to buy these big desktop computers. And lo and behold, I was learning sales with a captive audience. Then there were incentives. Hey, you sold this, we'll pay you extra. That became really nice when on a Saturday, everybody walking in had never owned a cell phone before and they wanted to get a cell phone. And I was making $20 for every cell phone that I sold. So, you know, as the broke high school kid, you're looking at this saying, well, I just went from making $5 an hour at a grocery store to on a good Saturday, 
I'm making my $7 an hour plus ice pocket an extra $70 in sales commissions. So that probably started the process of realizing that, okay, sales is just a game of if they say this, you start learning how to respond, ask questions, figure out what somebody's ultimately looking for. And maybe I have a solution for them. So if we could maybe expand on this, I really love this conversation. And I think it's one that does not get talked about even nearly enough is just the power of sales and learning how to be a salesman. Like even myself, who was going to school for finance and economics, sales was like the bottom tier of jobs that people wanted to get. And I never really understood that being a part of this movement, because having some sort of incentive tied to the work that you're doing rather than just getting, you know, $80,000 salary, no matter how much you do, no matter how late you stay, you have so many more incentives in sales. And I don't know if you could just expand on maybe some of the whether it's behavioral trends or behavioral things that you learned in sales or the monetary benefit of being in sales, because I don't think it gets talked about nearly enough. First, I'd say the best part about sales is sales is one of the few jobs where you don't get into any politics when it comes to how much you make. It's very simple. You know, you sell a product, you're going to get paid a portion of either the profit that's made or the total revenue that you generate. I mean, and that appealed to me because it didn't matter where you came from, how you grew up. It was just, can you get out there and can you perform? Now, you know, one of the reasons I think sales gets a bad rap in college is I went to a lower tier state school. So the only people who came and recruited were Edward Jones, Northwestern Mutual, any of the really low end retail sales organizations. So that was tough. I got I was fortunate enough to luck into a job as a summer bank teller. And I befriended a couple of the guys who went and loaned money to businesses. And they kind of walked me through, okay, inside a bank, here's the consumer facing side, here's the caps that it has. But here, if you go, if you're going and you're selling to businesses, they buy exponentially more stuff. They have larger dollars exchanging hands, so you can make more money as a salesperson. So I ended up latching onto that, going through a training program, and then, then stuck with that as a career. I was fortunate to come out in a situation where you didn't have to start as an analyst or anything else. It's just everybody did everything. So here you are, a new banker, go and talk to a customer, even though you have no idea what you're doing. Absolutely clueless on what I was doing, but I had a lot of runway to go and give it a try. And then you just, you know, the other part about sales some people don't like is you learn through experience. So you just have to work more early on. I mean, if that rule holds true that it takes 10,000 hours to master a skill, well, you can either get there in five years by working 40 hours a week, or you can get there a lot quicker if you're willing to work 50 or 60. And not always the most appealing thing to say around a bunch of fire folks, but mm. I got married young. My wife was in vet school, so she was working all the time. So I was either going to work or be watching television or playing video games at home. And I did a whole lot of both, but I worked a lot. <laughs> So sales is definitely, like Cody said, one of those things that just needs more attention because you can drive your own value. You can you can earn more just by getting a good job done and not necessarily, like you said, worrying about all the politics. It's also a skill that I think translates better to entrepreneurship than most other jobs. But I'm just curious, you know, people who are looking at that, maybe it's somebody who's not sure what career they want to go into. They're thinking about a career change and they're looking at sales. What do you say to people who are trying to wrestle with this idea of like feeling a little sleazy, like going into something where they're selling something to people that they don't necessarily always believe that the person should actually be buying, but they're so incentivized to sell it to them that they're going to do so anyway? It's great you asked me. I had this conversation with somebody 
just last month that was looking at a career change. And I knew she was really fit to be in sales, but didn't quite know how to get in it. And the first advice that I give is sell something that everybody has to have anyways. I work for a bank. Every business out there has a deposit account and most of them borrow money. It wasn't sleazy to go out there and to say, hey, if you need to borrow more money, consider me. You know, And the more people you talk to, inevitably, six or nine months later, I get the phone call that said, you know, my existing bank really pissed me off and you showed up six or nine months ago. Come, up, come back here and talk to me. So, But for this person, I gave them the advice of go work for one of the payroll companies. Every single business out there processes payroll through somebody. You just go work for one of the three major companies. They're going to tell you the 20% of clients that are theirs. The other 80%, just go talk to them. And at any given time, some portion of those businesses are going to be considering changing providers. So then it's just a game of how many can you talk to so you have a chance. You know, the second part of it, I think, is a big misnomer is people who are introverted don't think that they're good salespeople. And I actually argue with that because you know, I was introverted and I ended up fielding a team of introverts when I was a sales manager for five years. And we had the top performing team over and over. You know, we were in complex financial sales and the biggest skill or the biggest frustration depending on the employee was the ability to sit in front of a customer, ask deep questions, and then just be quiet and listen. And the first time they offer up a problem and you can sell to them, don't just jump on that bait right away. People are so used to being just run over by salespeople. Instead, just somebody who asks insightful questions and can um, listen. It's a really valuable skill. So, Robert, I'd love to dive back into your personal finance story. So you have that internship, you get the job straight out of college, you're in sales. What was your personal finances looking like? Were you saving a large portion of your income? If you were, was there a reason you were saving a large portion of your income? Or could you just walk us through that part of your journey? So the first three years I was working, my wife was in vet school. So we lived together. I wasn't making a lot of money. I think my salary was average thirty-five or thirty-six thousand a year for the first two years, and I got a small pay increase. So, and even in two thousand and five, that wasn't a lot of money for two people to be living on. So, you know, we were kind of frugal out of necessity. My wife has always been a natural saver, so she was never she was never a spender. You know, but our life was pretty good then. We were a nice college town. We had great outdoor activities around us. We had mountains. We had you know, in the middle of the summer, I'd be standing in a river fishing and she would be on an inflatable raft next to me. That just doesn't cost a whole lot of money. Probably pretty dumb when I was reeling in a smallmouth bass and swimming down a river, but, you know, just not stuff that cost a whole lot of money. When she graduated, we both moved to Atlanta. I got a nice pay increase from doing it. She started bringing in a job. So it was probably middle of 2007 before we were really saving much money. We did okay on our house in that college town, and I put a little bit in our 401k. But, you know, when you add my student loans and her student loans together, we were still broke until 2008 or 2009. And I actually think we got above broke and then back to broke when the market tanked. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through that, because I know, you know, me and Cody, we don't have that experience of seeing what the last market crash was. And obviously, it's timely information with the market crashing again, but... When you're hit, coming into 2008, 2009, it sounds like that's when you're first starting to really have the extra money to invest and to be new to this and to be coming into the market really ready to start investing and then it to be crashing in front of you. Like psychologically, what was that like? And then as you're thinking through it, if you have any advice for people who are new investors now, like I don't want to jump too far ahead into the current events of today, but you know, as you're talking about that, like 
What should new investors think about based on the, what you learned psychologically through that experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I can say it was disheartening. 2008, I would have been 26 and I'm opening a 401k statement. And towards the end of that year, I'm seeing less money in there, including the company match than what I've contributed for four or five years worth of work. That, that is di- that's really disheartening. And then it added a lot more stress for me because I was working in finance and a couple of our big competitors failed. We had the secondary scare of what about my job security? We thought she was going to be okay, but we had a mortgage, a house that was a little bit too big, not a lot of an emergency fund. Suddenly, my job wasn't that secure. That was a little bit concerning. But, you know, we, I probably made some mistakes and I got a little too conservative out of that. But we didn't sell anything at the bottom or make any crazy moves with our investments. And I encourage everybody not to go move around a whole bunch right now, especially if you're in your 20s, your job is fairly secure. Make sure you have an emergency fund of three to six months and then just continue investing in equities. Because the only two things that are going to beat inflation over 30 or 40 years is either own shares of companies or own real estate. And there's going to be a pretty rough ride in between there because both of those things tend to crash about every 10 years. So saving in a 401k and just saving in general is one thing, but chasing this holy grail that all of us like to talk about so much of financial independence is a whole different thing. When was the first time you were introduced to financial independence and what was your personal finance situation? You know, it probably came in two parts. I mean, I got the idea of, okay, if you invest this much money you know, and it compounds with interest rate, you can get a lot. I think my some of my initial projections were, we were both working. I was like, well, what would it be like if we had a million dollars when we hit 40? We didn't know what we would do with a million dollars. And I think about that scene from Office Space where they say, what would you do with a million dollars? And they said, well, I, you know, I don't need a million dollars. You know, we really didn't have a plan with it at that point. You know, the second half of 2009, both of our careers started getting a lot better. So we went from being worried about our jobs in 2008 and early 2009 to we're actually making pretty good money. I got a nice salary bump to where I was making eighty dollars or $85,000. My wife had made a move in her career where she got a practice that was right next to our house, reduced her commuting cost, and got a nice raise. You know, suddenly, you know, we're two people at 27 or 28 making pretty good money, and we can suddenly max out 401ks, max out our IRAs. And it turned out to be a really good time to be doing that. But I'd say we were probably still grinding and grinding along and didn't, I didn't get introduced to the idea of early retirement or financial independence until 2013 when I found the famous Mr. Money Mustache. So when 2013 rolls around, you've already had a pretty good bit of you know work experience, experience investing. It sounds like you already had frugality down pretty well. But most people, when they discover, you know, that true subject matter of financial independence, early retirement, not just the theoretical you know, the math equations, but really start studying people who are doing it, getting into the lifestyles behind it, they tend to make some bigger changes. So were there any bigger changes that you made when you discovered that around 2013? The first two weren't quite big, but one one was great and one was stupid. You know, I canceled some reservations at the Ritz Carlton and go and book the Economy Hotel one block off for a trip in the Grand Caymans. I'll always remember that because we were hauling all of our stuff across the street and looking at these people at the Ritz and like, man, did I make the right decision? <laughs> and then we we thought we could just up and renovate our basement like like the mustache was doing and home renovations just were not we were not quite as good at it as he was. But no, I, I think you know, us discovering it, we really we 
looked really hard at, what do we do next? Does my wife quit her job that she really didn't like? Do I pursue a promotion inside the company? Do I try to move to a lower stress job? You know, and that's when we really started figuring out, okay, here's an FI number. We can hit that thing in four or five years. Because also 2013 was a great year in the market. You know, it felt like my felt like my first 10 years of working were just a complete beating in the market. And then 2013 was really good. You know, that was really when we first started making changes towards it. So eventually I took a promotion. We moved right next to the office, cut our housing costs down some. My wife quit her job and we ended up saving more money because she got really good at defense and a lot of the little places that money was leaking out stopped leaking out. So we all know in this fire fire space, there's the two sides. There's financial independence and there's retire early. Now, I know you hit financial independence and then retired early. I wasn't exactly sure how long after you hit financial independence, you actually did pull the trigger on retirement. But I was hoping you could walk us through that when you felt comfortable with those numbers and what the whole psychological thought process was like. I mean, it's a tough question because you start looking at it and that number can be an ever moving goal, especially if it's someone like me that, you know, I first started saving and got frugality out of security. And then I experienced 2008 and 2009 and having a job from a big company with a big paycheck was an added level of security. So it it was kind of, it was more of a slow boil that it happened. So I made one move. We really reduced our lifestyle. I knew if we stayed in that spot, we could have hit it in three or four years from 2014. But then I got a pretty big promotion opportunity with work, moved to a higher cost of living city, but with a substantially higher rate of pay. So then we decided to do that. And I was pretty locked in for three years. Some of the pay was in the form of stock. I had some relocation money that I had to pay back because I had actually moved twice with a company. So we knew all along that by making that move right around the beginning of 2015, that kind of locked me into, uh, I at least need to work through some portion of 2018 or early 19 to make it work. So with all that, I kind of had two dates all along. It was either going to be middle of the year in 2018 or March of 2019, just because of how some of the compensation was structured. But deciding when to do it, it's really scary. You know, and it's really scary because you always wonder, what if, what if I retire and something like what's going on right now in the market happens since we're recording this in the second half of March. So that's actually where I wanted to jump in and ask, because I know most people, that's the thing that holds them back. They're like, well, what if the recession hits the next day after I retire? Like, I know the math says it's supposed to last through recessions. And, but then people start digging into these posts about secrets of returns risk and they start thinking about, you know, all these doomsday scenarios, regardless of what history says. And now you're kind of living pretty close to that. I mean, you retired very close to when this happened, not necessarily the day before, but it's still, you know, pretty close as far as things go. So I would love for you to walk us through not only what you're feeling right now, but also what you would like to tell other people who have just retired or thinking about maybe retiring this year. Well, I don't know how many people are going to be excited to pull the trigger if uh, we continue being 35% down on BTSAX right now. We're certainly living through interesting times. I like to say that I went from fat fi to lean fi in a month. So we go back a month ago and you know I was sitting nicely above 25 times expenses and I had backed into a little side hustle for a friend's company. So I had 40% of my living expenses coming in for some stuff I was helping them out with and I had 28 times it expenses. And now fast forward a month later, I'm sitting in the high teens on number of expenses. And 
oh, by the way, his company was predicated on large public gatherings. So we had to lay off 80% of the employees, including myself. And there was no way around it. It's an entrepreneur-run company. You know, it's absolutely triaging cash right now. So had close to 1,000 employees and 800 immediately had to be let go. And there's just no money to pay anybody. Wow. So we're st- I'm still kind of absorbing the entire situation. But the good news about someone who's financially independent, like myself, I mean, our position is better than 95% of the folks out there going through it. I mean, you know, these are definitely tough times between the number of people that have been laid off. The primary state that they operate in, the state's unemployment website, isn't really working. So people are logging in trying to file claims and they just get a, get a please try back again later. So from a fire perspective, you know, our concerns are really minimal compared to what's out there. I mean, you still have to be confident that if, if I ever need to go earn more money, there's lots of ways I can do it. I just advise people, run those scenarios through your head and you say, where are your job skills valuable if the economy is really in the toilet and you need to go and earn some money? You know, and that may not be going and working at Starbucks or going and doing a gig job because suddenly a lot more people are going to be trying to do those. You know, in my situation and my skill skill set, I kind of know that I can go work for a distressed debt fund, the SBA or the FDIC, hire temporary appointments to deal with some of the bank problems or some of the emergency disaster lending that needs to be done. So there are income options, even when the even when times get bad, you just have to be okay going back to something that's at you know, one third or one fourth of what I previously made. Well, first, I just want to say I am super glad that you said that you're way better poised than so many other people out there because you see all those naysayers on every social media platform, on every article about fire. Where are the fire people going to be when a recession hits? Talking through the microphone right now to us with 20 times his annual expenses saved. Second, I just wanted to ask and see how dynamic your budget is month to month. Like, what are you doing in the short term or maybe even in the long term to hedge against something like this persisting or happening again, say, five or 10 years down the road? I actually think the toughest thing for someone like me or somebody who's financially independent to do is you kind of give up control. Something like this happens in the market. You know, I've spent years making a lot of money and being in control of my finances. And now we've seen that go away. I think that's a lot of what leads to this panic selling that we're seeing in the market where people just say, I can't take it anymore. I'm out. I can't be invested. And it's that control factor. So for us, we were really good at living frugal and we can do that again and continue to do it again. We looked at our budget. You know, there's 20% of it that can come out without too much pain. And then not to say this is a good thing in any way, but right now we're renters. We chose not to buy a house here because you know, how much the houses cost relative to how much they could rent for just didn't make sense. You know, the reality is a recession like this where you have prolonged, where you have job losses that may not all come back, it's eventually going to pull down the blue collar B-class neighborhood houses and we'll be able to buy a house and reduce our costs significantly there. So, you know, we think short term, there's 20% of our budget that comes out longer term, there's another to 30 or 35%. You know, and we chose to live somewhere where we have a paradise tax. And right now we can still take our kayak out on the water. They they shut our beaches down after a picture of them last Thursday ended up in a newspaper in Europe showing how dumb Americans were. <laughs> so, I, so I really hope that my picture isn't somewhere in there because based on where the news is saying it was taken from, I may have been caught on that beach. <laughs> but we were all practicing good social distancing, but it got pretty full. 
So you're talking a little bit about real estate, and I know in some of the information that we have here, it says, you know, you can talk about how people can look at their primary residence like a rental and how you have had two separate five-figure losses on rental estate because you overpaid instead of just looking at renting. And I know a lot of times people demonize renting out of rent right now because of the same situation. I mean, if I look at what it would cost to buy this apartment versus what it costs me to rent it, the numbers just really don't make sense for me to buy it. So I would love for you to dig a little deeper into those numbers and what you mean by looking at a residence like a rental. This is from a couple of lessons in pain. I bought a townhouse while my wife was in college and we were didn't have a lot of money, but got one of those first time homeowners loans. We bought a little townhouse for 120,000 because the numbers make sense. So it would cost us 1,000 or 1,100 a month to rent it. But when I looked at what's the payment, what's the HOA fee, not a lot of money down, it made sense. And then we sold that for a nice little profit, but made the mistake of buying a house for 250000 that would only rent for 1600 a month. We bought that in 2007 in Atlanta, owned it for seven years and still managed to lose fifty grand on the house. It was not pleasant. But the real reason that we lost money on that house, when I look at it all, is that house would rent for 1600 a month. Seven years later, it rented for 1800 a month. But you know, it only sold for a little bit more than the 1% rule, or when you inverse it, 100 times monthly rent. So then the next house that I bought, we bought small. It was in the 120, 130 times monthly rent range. We got out of it, didn't lose much money. Then I went and made that mistake again when I moved in the high cost of living area. So I mean, I think I paid something like 200 times monthly rent, owned the house for three and a half years. And after commissions and everything, I still lost money. You know, and I think a lot of real estate, you know, people, it's sold to fall in love with it. You love this open concept. You love all these fancy appliances. Your house is your, your home is your castle. But really, you know, your home's value is, is in two components, how much the next person will buy it to live in or how much you can rent it. You know, and, and I never want to be put in a position again where I have to sell a house because I was in that position when I was moving out of the high cost of living area that I moved from and to make our fire plans work, I had to sell a house that was $650,000. You know, and 6% of $650,000 was a lot of money. Yeah, not too cheap there. <laughs> no, that was a lot of money and there were no discount brokerages really work for that situation. You know, whereas I had friends that were making good money in that market and they were just very disciplined at the price they paid. And despite you learning these tough lessons, I think failures are one of the best ways that we can learn lessons. And an acronym you sent over that I love is BTFD, buy the F and dip. And you said that this made you a bunch of money in 2015 and 2018, but in 2020, March 2020 specifically, when we're recording this, you got burned a little bit. So could you talk about why and what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So buy the dip, you'll see everybody celebrating on Twitter about Hey, the market fell. I'm buying more. I'm buying more. Well, you know, in 2015 to early 16, the market fell 19%. Then in 2018, it fell by 20%. But in both times, it recovered pretty quickly. So all the people who were buying the dip, buy the dip, they did really well moving their cash allocation over into stocks and then pulling it back out slowly after it had reversed. Well, third time was not the charm. So you start, you have a lot of people that were buying the dip and you know, I like buying individual equities and, and I have some index funds, but you know, we went into early retirement with 
you know, 40% bonds and we're at least 30% bonds, we were following an equity glide path where we were slowly moving that over to equities. So between slowly moving at some plus the great run in the market that we had, we were 70-30 going into this. Well, prices started falling, prices started falling, and there were some there were definitely some companies I wanted to add to. And when they fell 10%, it looked really attractive and I bought some and moved it over. Then it fell to 15%. I bought some and I moved over some more. You know, and then I remember when it started getting near 20%, we were actually, you know, things were still open. We were actually at the new Star Wars park inside Disney World. It's like, wow, I have not seen these prices for three or four years on a couple of these companies. These are good companies. You know, they're going to survive an apocalypse scenario. Buy more, buy more. Well, you know, pretty soon I had burned through a good chunk of that bond allocation. And then everything started being shut down. Some of those companies are in industries where now they haven't fallen 20%. They've fallen 60%. You know, the problem when something falls 50%, it then has to go up 100 for you to get back to even. You know, so the important lesson in that is, you know, you get over a certain amount saved. Rule number one is don't lose money. Rule number two is remember rule number one. <laughs> we'll end up being fine. There's only a couple of moves that I made that I had a one and a half percent concentration in cruise lines that looks like that's just lost money at this point. I'd imagine so. <laughs> but I'd imagine so. Either it's uh, completely lost money or they're going to become a ward of the government and neither neither are great for an investor. I would just be cautious about the buy the dip, buy the dip because Investment strategies are famous. They work, they work, and they work until one day they don't. So I know we're certainly not going to get on here and try to advise people on how they can predict the market and these like certain companies they should buy and these great deals where they should park all their money in because we're definitely you know heavy proponents of a lot of diversification. But I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on maybe some of these companies like people. I think that what I've seen the most is kind of pointing out some of the airlines because you know I think we could all imagine life without a cruise line potentially. But it's hard to even just imagine life without an airline. So some people are looking like, hey, these airlines are down 60%. We got to have airlines. It's a sure bet. Do you have any like reminders from 2008 where there were these sure bets that didn't turn out to be sure bets? Here's the problem with airlines. I worked in banking. The banking industry, unfortunately, went through this in 2008 and 2009. The problem with an industry when you have to go to Uncle Sam for a bailout is you will probably get the bailout, but Uncle Sam will never forget. You know, banks today still have to present a plan to the to the federal government every single year for approval of share buybacks and dividends. And then some of the loans that they took, they wanted to get out of the restrictions so badly, they issued a whole bunch of stock when it was really low. So there are all sorts of banks you can pull, especially in the number 10 through number 30 size in the country. And if you look at their share charts, they're still only trading for half of what they traded for in 2008 because they had to issue a lot of stock to get out of the emergency loans that they got. And they're still restricted on returning capital to their shareholders. So, I mean, you laugh about the cruise lines. I actually made a couple bets on the cruise lines versus the airlines on the fact that I don't believe the government will bail out the cruise lines. (laughs) They're either going to survive or they won't. And I actually think you know, I think the cruise lines will get a decent amount of, they still have a decent amount of lending capacity before they're just allowed to go to zero. Whereas once you go to Uncle Sam points, that's a really tough business to be an investor in because you're always number two. Once you've had to go to the taxpayer, the taxpayer's number one, the shareholder's number two. 
I'm in the avoid the airlines camp. If you want to bet on the travel industry, I mean, go look up some of the companies that own a bunch of hotels right now. They have some of those scenarios where they're either going to go to zero or you'll make three times your money. Just know it's a speculative bet. I'm not giving investment advice on that. (laughs) Yeah, we're definitely not giving investment advice here. No, but that was exactly the kind of insight I was looking for, because I don't think that's, you know, what you just talked about where, sure, the company might survive, but if they survive because of a bailout, all those implications that come with it, I don't think that's been talked about enough. And so that is exactly the kind of insight we were looking for. So I appreciate it. The other piece of insight I would give is the reason I like the cruise lines better than the airlines is the airlines are still dependent on fares and fees per 90% of their revenue. The cruise ships only have one problem. People aren't allowed on the ships today. As long as they get people back on those ships, they will spend money. Almost 40% of their revenue is made by onboard spending and not fares. As long as they find a way to get people on the ships, they can generate some cash flow. So we've talked a good bit about how you're adjusting your expenses. You, we've been talked a bit about your investment strategy But we haven't really talked about, although you were lucky, you've already been retired. And I know you did have that side hustle that you said was covering 40% of your expenses, but now that's gone. Are you going out and looking to supplement your income in any type of way? I know you are pretty well positioned. You said you have a pretty healthy bond allocation. It's probably somewhere in the 20s now because you had alluded to spending some of that. I'm not sure exactly where it's at. I won't dig too hard. Let's just say (laughs) I've I've spent a lot more. It's not as high as in the 20s. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm sure you still have- (laughs) It's single digits I'm sure you still have at least a year or two or several years of expenses saved in lower risk investment options like bonds or cash. Okay. So you're well positioned, but so are you looking to supplement your income with any type of side hustles or any type of side job? It's tough to say. I mean, we're still kind of getting over the shock of everything that happens. If I end up doing something, it's going to more be about just how good the prices are right now on certain companies and certain you know, assets that are out there or the ability to generate some type of income to go play the real estate rental game. You know, I was in ground zero of the real estate game last time and completely missed that. I mean, I knew a lot of people who did really well from 2008 through 2011. You know, and if this ends up causing real estate prices to adjust, you know, I may go do something to supplement my income just to be able to go out and get a couple of mortgages and play that game. But not not really looking for full time work. There may be some temporary assignments or projects for people I know that this creates. But no, I don't plan on putting on a suit and going back into a bank office anytime soon. Things have to get a lot worse for me to get to that point. Yeah, you're, you stopped ironing shirts a long time ago, Robert. <laughs> yeah, don't think I'm doing that again. And, you know, and I'll tell you some of the stories that I'm hearing from friends who are still in it. I mean, it's tough when, you, when all your customers' revenue evaporates overnight. I had a friend in Seattle tell me she was just having a really rough time since lockdown started there first. So it would be a few years before I think those jobs would even open up. It would be stuff in the interim, and it would mainly just be for capital to go and invest in something. I still like the game of business. I just don't want to play it full time. So, Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is such a timely episode. I mean, you're someone who has retired relatively recently, and I know there's listeners out there who this is a huge concern of theirs. If they pull that trigger and they retire early and a recession comes, what are they going to do? And we are seeing one of the biggest turndowns we've seen in a very long time. And you're showing how it's still possible. You're giving us some of those tangible steps that you have taken and that you have not taken, which is just as important. And so thank you for coming on and telling your story. And if people want to get more of that story, more of this information, where's the best place they can reach out and contact you about that? Best place to find me is on my blog at stopironingshirts.com. 
I tend to post every couple of weeks on there and you'll see some random stuff about investing early retirement or what happens after financial independence. And something we like to ask all of our guests is what is your number one tip for those chasing financial independence? I'm a big fan of just starving your budget. Defer as much money as you can without putting yourself in a bad situation before it ever hits your paycheck. You know, as the salary kept increasing, I had access to both 401k and a deferred compensation plan. And one year, I was able to defer six figures worth of income before it ever hit my paycheck. And I just had no temptation to spend it. I said, my wife is the frugal one. I'm more likely to spend money. So by not having it ever hit my bank account, I just can't spend it. Awesome advice, man. Okay, Robert, you're almost out of the woods, but we got one question left for you. It's one that we're definitely not prepared for because as you heard, we didn't know who was even going to ask you the question, but are you ready for the wild card question? Go ahead. So one of my favorite like segments on television is a, a thing that comes on Sports Center by Scott Van Pelt. It's called Bad Bets. And so the whole premise is like you've got the Vegas line up on the screen and it's, you know, say a football team is supposed to lose by six. Somebody, you know, runs a fumble back the last second, didn't even matter, didn't change the who's going to win the game. And all of a sudden, all these people in Vegas lost a ton of money. And I know that you are someone who actually does look into these individual stocks, like digging into things that they could buy, you know, these one off stocks. And a lot of our guests don't. They just buy total stock market. So this wouldn't be a good question for them. But I'd like to ask you, what's like a bad bet that you've had, like a company you've picked out and you thought this is going to be a surefire winner and then something comes out? I mean, like either there's some kind of scandal in their industry or, you know, maybe they had a patent go wrong or whatever it might be. Like, have you ever had a scenario like that? Oh, yeah. So I was listening to a radio show and I'd seen all these ladies around the office and at work and they all had coach purses. And I go and I pull up the um, financials of the company I hear about. It's like, this thing has to be a sure bet but I failed to do one thing. I didn't go walk the normal mall and look at where people were actually in because I went and invested in this thing. Then the next time I was in a mall, which is pretty rare, I was like, man, the coach store is completely empty. I've lost almost 80% of that investment pretty quickly. (laughs) The next quarter earnings came out. That is the last time I will ever invest in women's fashion trends. I was just about to say, invest in what you you understand. Yeah, invest in what you know. (laughs) And women's purses is the last thing I know about. (laughs) So the beautiful thing about the wild card question is because we don't prepare for it, uh, a lot of times we don't know if we're actually going to get a good response. And so thank you so much for having a great, I mean, I hate that you lost 80% on investment, but you really hooked me up with that response. Look, always invest in what you know. Do not invest in women's purses. Well, Robert, thanks again. This has been super entertaining and like Justin said, super timely episode for someone who just recently pulled the trigger less than two years ago, which is certainly a scary time for you, but it sounds like you're weathering the storm. You have a game plan going forward and I appreciate you spending the time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Another awesome and super timely episode, Justin. I know something we really focused on was his transition from fat fire to lean fire, but something I want to talk about quickly first is the power of sales. And I know I harped on it so much in the episode and I never really understood when I was going to school for finance why nobody wanted a sales job. It's like your income is potentially infinite if you're a good salesman. And I know you have a lot more real world experience in the sales field than I do. And Robert clearly knows the power of this field as well. What do you think about the episode, man? Yeah, it was definitely a great episode. Definitely a super timely one, like you mentioned, with this whole transition, everybody's accounts, seeing these big changes and thinking about what would it have been like if I would have retired just before this happens. But to jump into what you mentioned first, talking about sales, 
I've definitely seen that power that he's talking about because you can get paid based on your performance and not just based on like the salary you signed up for in a very tangible way. Like you can very tangibly see like, I did this work, I landed these clients, this is my pay based on it. It's not just like a, well, you know, they said the company did well this year, so we're all getting a little bonus and you're a little disconnected from it. And when you're looking at going into sales, there's definitely a spectrum. Some people are paid almost entirely on their quota, like on the sales that they get done. They're given a quota for the year. If they hit that, that's their pay. And anything over that, they start getting these really good bonuses. I'm on kind of like an 80-20 split where 80% of my salary is a base salary. 20% is variable. And then if I overperform in that 20%, I can start getting additional bonuses. I think the biggest thing people need to think about when they're going into it is probably their personality type. So if you're the type that really wants to go out there, put in the extra hours to try to get that extra paycheck, it's an awesome place. But if you want to be honest with yourself and you realize like, hey, I'm more of a kind of, you know, middle of the road, not work too hard, just do my job, get in, get out, then sales may not be the career field for you. Something I just want to quickly touch on there, because I was really glad Robert brought this up, was he said he basically fielded a whole team of introverts. And a lot of people think you have to be the loudest guy or girl in the room to make the sale. But that's not true at all. And what you were just saying, Justin, some people might have construed that as you have to be that really loud, that really type A person that's always hitting people up or whatever. But he said introverts are crushing this and introverts can work just as hard or harder than extroverts. So I thought that was a really good point that Robert made. Like if you think you're not cut out to be a quote unquote salesperson and a lot of salespeople get a bad rep because they might be selling a slimy product or something that they don't actually believe in. But if you're selling a product or a service that you genuinely believe in, it'll come almost naturally for you to promote that product. Talking about that stereotypical, like selling a product that you don't believe in, that slimy salesman, that's one thing Robert talked about as far as sell something that everyone needs. He was handling lending for small businesses, which every small business needs. So there's no reason to feel slimy about that. Like they're going to buy it from someone. The other thing is about the introvert part. It's definitely very true that that type of setup can can work. Like you don't have to be this super loud over-the-top salesperson. And I think it's even more true in today's landscape because companies are increasingly becoming more tech-focused and therefore their leadership are these smarter, more technical people. And those type people aren't really looking for somebody to come in and give them a rah-rah sales pitch. They want somebody to come in and give them the facts and give them a compelling argument. And so you've really seen actually the type of people who are in sales start to change and who is successful at it start to change. And I think that group of introverts that Robert was talking about is a great example of that. So now moving more toward the early retirement, because like we mentioned before, Robert went from fat fire to lean fire in a month, which is absolutely crazy. We won't hit on it too hard because we did two weeks back in our coronavirus special episode talking about the power and importance of an emergency fund. But Robert definitely stressed that. One thing that was a really unique angle to Robert, and I really liked that we brought him on, he talked about it openly, was he likes taking outsized risk for potential outsized return. We talked about investing in individual stocks like cruises and airlines, and he gave his rationale. He gave why this is a good investment to him, while this other thing might not be such a good investment to him. And what I really liked was how meticulously he thought about those investment strategies. Because Justin and I, we typically advocate for just index investing. It's super passive. You can set it and forget it. And that works for a lot of people. That works for 90% of people. But Robert is not 90% of people. He's this finance guy. He wants to take things to the next level. And he's okay. He understands the risk that's inherent in making these types of bets, betting on options, 
betting on a stock either tanking or going through the roof. And so that was just a really interesting point. And I love the way he framed it. He's like, hey, I think, Justin, you asked a question about the cruise lines. And he's like, you know what? If you make eight bets on eight different cruise lines, even if six of them go under, those two that you hit a home run on, those returns might be so much higher than the losses you incurred from those sunken stocks. So I just thought it was a really interesting and unique view. And it reminded me that there are different ways to do this. And as long as you're meticulous, as long as you completely understand the pros and cons, you can start to tackle some investment strategies that are a little bit outside of the norm. And bouncing off of that, Cody, you know, Robert went through the big financial crisis in 2008. And from that, he also had some lessons learned, which we talked about during that same segment, you know, when we're comparing airlines and cruise lines. And with the airlines getting a lot of this funding that's coming out, that may mean that that for a long time, they don't actually realize any gains because they're having to pay back the government. And I would have honestly never even thought of that. And that's the difference between somebody like me and like Robert and the reason why he feels so much more comfortable taking those kind of bets is because he really digs in. He really understands it. He's been in the financing world as a career. So he gets how all of these things work and he gets what makes a company successful and which ones are more likely to survive something like this. The other thing that I would say is, again, me and Cody generally, we recommend people doing total stock market type investments. But if you want to get into something like this, just protect yourself, like set up some hard limits, say five, 10% of your overall nest egg, you're willing to put at these more risky bets. So that way, if all fails, none of your research panned out, you're still in an okay place. Just don't over leverage yourself. And now it's time for the call to action. And so the call to action today is right along those lines. So There are so many companies that are just in the tank right now. So many companies have lost 30, 40, 50, 60% of their value. And we're definitely not saying that all these companies are going to rebound and there's going to be this huge hurrah and every single bet you're going to place is going to be a winner. But going out and doing the research, kind of like what Robert was saying, really digging into the weeds, understanding how these companies are run, how they're going to dig themselves out of this rut. And if you think that it's possible, and like Justin said, we only want you playing around with 5 to 10% of your money. If you have a million dollars and you're going to put a million dollars and bet on one stock, that is definitely a terrible financial decision. We are not backing you on that. But what is not a bad decision is going out, doing the research, starting to understand some of these different investment types. Because like Robert said, you can experience these outsized returns as long as you're cognizant of the outsized risk. And if you enjoyed the episode and want to get more information and read those show notes, you can do so over at thefyshow.com slash shirts. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.